0: Hello, hello, hello. Status Coup in the house. Tuesday, February 1st, the year 2022. Delighted to be joined. Friend of the coup, Steve Grumbine of Real Progressives, uh, who's doing great work uh, on Real Progressives and his new show, The Rogue Scholar. The Rogue Scholar, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday noon eastern time on real progress in action and we'll talk about that a little bit later too make sure you subscribe to real progress in action uh it is not a hot take factory it is real substantive uh progressive news yeah. absolutely thanks brother thank you absolutely brother. um boy steve let me tell you something i don't know about you oh, we've got a big show by the way uh we're going to talk the latest gaslighting by the democratic party uh, gonna talk about some good news for a change the labor movement is uh, kind of on fire right now it, by some measurements uh and uh, we're also gonna have another guest later uh, mark cuban of all people i don't know if i trust this i don't know if i trust this but mark cuban has created a low-cost generic pharmaceutical drug company for the express purpose according to him of of not making money, but lowering prescription drug prices. So we're gonna have Michael Lighty on a little bit later. He is with the Sanders Institute, probably the top expert in the country actually on universal healthcare, Medicare for all. So we're gonna talk to him about whether Mark Cuban uh, is whether this is real or not, uh, and, and how it could help you if it can help you on uh, prescription drug prices. But Steve, I don't know about you, because you've worn multiple hats at Real Progressives. <laughs> have you ever had to do a mind-numbing volume of administrative bullshit? While that's all I do. <laughs> while trying, while trying to do journalism, because no. <laughs> literally, literally, for the most part today, I have done. A mind-numbing volume of tedious administrative shit because i don't have a, an assistant at status coup uh, i don't have a general manager at status coup uh, i don't even have really a full-time producer at status coup uh so i'm a little exhausted from responding to emails uh being on the phone with at and t being on the phone with my bank Anyway, I digress. I don't want to bore the viewers. Smash that like button, thumbs up button right under the live stream. Smash, smash, smash that like button. We're, we're close. We're, not, we're sniffing 128,000 subscribers. And by the way, to new subscribers who have signed up recently and old subscribers, just to remind you, if you want to get notified when uh, we're live, if you want to get notified uh, when we post shorter videos, make sure you click that bell on youtube it's the subscribe button right next to the subscribe button there's a bell and you hover over that bell and click all notifications now uh, it's not a science uh you even i've I've heard from people jordan i did click the damn bell for all notifications and i went back and i was unclicked i don't know uh but if, if that's the case make sure to go back and look if you clicked all go back and check if it's still clicked on all because there's some funny shit going on these days. Well, for many days uh, with YouTube (laughs) where they unclick the bell or unsubscribe you. But make sure if you're a subscriber, hover over that bell, click that bell, and then click all notifications so you will get all notifications for our live streams. We're back to live Monday through Thursday, five o'clock Eastern time, Fridays at four o'clock Eastern for happy hour and haters. Uh, My wife doesn't like that because I snore. uh, Because if I drink, I snore, apparently. But I'm having a good time on Fridays. uh, So we'll see you Friday at four o'clock. Steve, um, let's start with uh, the Chuck E. Cheese, Chuck Schumer, um, who, you know, the Democratic Party, uh, we talk about them a lot. Uh, We're very critical. Uh, I think we're fair. But uh, the Democratic Party is now trying their best because obviously Biden's polls are down this down under the water with the Titanic. Uh, It's not looking good for Biden. It's not looking good for Democrats in November. Um, So they're trying to sell the typical speech. You know, GDP is up record number of jobs, blah, 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 blah. Uh, We talked about some of this last week that they're trying to put lipstick on a pig and dress up. This economy is booming and wonderful and, you know, whatever. But this was a new one. This was Chuck Schumer uh, on the Senate floor somehow invoking Ronald Reagan as the measuring stick <laughs> for how great the Democratic Party is doing on the economy. Colin, if we could play this.
1: The Open Market Committee was perhaps the most optimistic, forecasting a growth rate of about 4.3%. They were all wrong. The U.S. economy shattered most expectations and grew at the amazing rate of 5.7%. The strongest rate since the time of Ronald Reagan. And Mr. President, this was no accident. Far from it. Last year's historic turnaround is a reminder that the right leadership in government matters. Democrats promised in 2020 to fix Donald Trump's utter mismanagement of the COVID crisis and get our country back on track. And a year later, after securing the strongest growth rate in dec- in decades, Democrats are delivering on that promise. After Congress passed the American Rescue Plan, I said, help is on the way. And that help is getting America back on a path to normal. And though we still are learning to live with the virus, our economy, our communities and our schools are better off because of vaccines, because of testing and because of targeted legislation we passed last year, like the Restaurants Act and Save Our Stages. And I want to stress an important point that is forgotten too often. We are finally seeing wages go up at a significant rate. That's dollars in the working people's
0: pockets. I love when the working people's pockets, the working people's pockets. Uh, Them Steve, you people. <laughs> yes, you people. Uh, I was remiss, by the way. I, I, I was remiss. I should have said this at the top. For Status Quo viewers that watched yesterday, we had... Uh, uh, Amar Shagrill on. He's the head of the California Democratic Party's Progressive Caucus. We had him on because yesterday the, there was a vote. There was supposed to be a vote for single payer uh, health care in California. I know you've been critical, Steve, of trying this piecemeal state by state. The vote did not Very happen. Awesome. The, the vote did not happen because the author of the bill pulled it from the floor. Do not worry, folks. Tina did a follow up interview. Uh, we're going to air that a little bit after this live stream. So we do have an update on uh, the Democratic Party killing single payer in California for the second time in three, four years. So that will air. We're probably going to post that at eight o'clock Eastern time, five o'clock Pacific. So I just wanted viewers who watched yesterday. We will have an update. Tina interviewed Amar to go over what the hell happened. Why was that bill, bill pulled? But before we get to Chucky e. uh he's boosting about the economy, Steve. Here's just rapid fire. Washington Post, uh, rents are up more than 30% in some cities, forcing millions to find another place to live. Uh, This is from, yes, two days ago. Uh, Rents, 30% increase uh, all over the country. Um, Uh, Colin, do you have the right article? Uh, Kiara age moved in less than a year ago, and now it's time to move again. Rent on her two-bedroom apartment in Henderson, Nevada is rising 23% to nearly $1,600 a month, making it impossibly out of reach uh, for the single mother. Uh, I, I don't know if maybe maybe I sent you the wrong article. But this article, hold on, let me send it to you real quick, Colin. This article shows uh, rents are up um, 30%. Oh, you got it, Colin? Perfect. Uh, so rents are up 30% in most cities. Uh, that's just one example. A uh, age makes $15 an hour working from home as a medical biller while also caring for her one-year-old son because she can't afford childcare. So that's the wonderful economy Uh, rents jacking up 30%. Thank you uh, to uh, the real estate developers who run our local and state governments. Then you have Steve, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago Uh, a new poll. uh, This is from NBC news. A new poll shows that 61% of a, Uh, 61% of those polled say their family's income is is falling behind the cost of living on the economy while job creation is up and the unemployment rate is down. 61% of respondents in the poll say their family's income is falling behind the cost of living. So that's another way of saying can't keep up with expenses. Uh, Then we move on. Uh, Just 39% of Americans could pay for a $1,000 emergency expense. This is from last year. Uh, that's kind of along the same lines of, uh, what was it? Uh, I think 40 to 50% of Americans who can't afford a $400 $400 emergency. So all of these things, bang, 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 bang. Yet Schumer and the Democrats, I don't know if they think people are stupid uh, or it's kind of like that Obama magic where if you just kind of sprinkle that economic fairy dust, don't worry that people don't feel it. Maybe they'll just believe you. What are your thoughts? Because that's a new level, invoking Reagan. Uh, best numbers since Reagan. By the way, Colin, if you have that chart, they're invoking Reagan. Here's here's how the economy fared over the last 40 years, thanks to Ronald Reagan. You see that? See that orange line at the bottom? It's the bottom 90% wage. <laughs> see that top curvy line, 229%? That's the top 1%. So they're invoking Reagan, Steve. Uh, well, I don't know. 1980. What happened? He won. Your thoughts.
2: Well, isn't, isn't this like the 12th term of Ronald Reagan? I mean, apparently haven't we just had a nonstop Ronald Reagan presidency. I'm not even joking. This is literally every election cycle. We have another Reagan come through the door, different rhetoric, different, whatever, different affect, same policies, same approach, same everything. When it came to this pandemic response, we've talked about this so often that I almost feel like, you know, you have to not be listening on purpose to not get this by now to, to the to the world, right? It's like they've obscured this so much. But the fact is, is that most of the monies that were spent during the pandemic went to the top of the food chain, went all the way up to the top. And what do people do that have more than enough money to pay their regular bills, it goes into the market and it makes them more money, right? A lot of these people are rentier class. They're out there renting their apartments or squatting on houses. They're driving the cost of rents up because they know that they can. And so right here, right now, the same exact scenario where that balkanized view of society exists, where the haves are really, really raking it in big time. And the have nots are barely putzing through. I mean, a guy called me today to offer me a potential for another job. I don't want it. I like the job I have, but I listened to him because why wouldn't you listen? And he offered me literally $2 an hour less than what I'm making in my current job. And I I said to him, I said, "Is, is this considered to be a good wage here? He goes, well, this is the highest wage that they're allowing us to give. Now, mind you, this is the same position. It's a contract position. And there's a set wage. And it is literally less money now than it was a few years back. How is that even possible? It's still a highly professional, highly skilled position that requires lots of certifications and everything else, but yet now all of a sudden the wage this is $2 an hour less than it was. Now, no benefits, no days off, no nothing. This is what they're replacing old work with is shit wages with shit benefits. And, and you're expected to be thrilled about it, but you look at the story that you put out there, the, the Washington post story real quick. And once again, you've got a woman making $15 an hour and the rent is going up another couple hundred dollars a month. Her wages didn't go up. Nothing about her life got less expensive. And, and, and there's nothing, the people that own those homes, it's not like they suddenly had to pay more money for those homes. Their, their mortgage or whatever they have on that house is the same as it was before. Taxes didn't go up. So what exactly drove the cost of the rent up? You think about it for a minute. It really does come down to gouging. And they they're, they're made huge amounts of money through the, the pandemic. And now on top of it, they're gonna play on that game
0: and gal just because they can
2: and that's it's not going to get any better i'm
0: furious so what what you're saying steve Colin, if we could play it one more time our schools are better off because of vaccines
1: because of testing that is forgotten too often we are finally seeing wages go up at a significant rate that's dollars in the working people's pockets
0: so wait a minute and Colin, by the way, <laughs> let's let's cut that for perpetual loose for pe- for perpetual use, the working people's pockets. I definitely want Chuck E. Cheese, uh, that for perpetual use. But so what you're saying is on paper there's there's numbers going up, but those numbers aren't necessarily actually reality in terms of improving people's material lives. It's like They're numbers, but it's just bullshit categories that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, by the way, it's not just Democrats, are pushing out there cyclically every election cycle to make it look like things are booming. But in reality, apartment prices are going up, home prices are going up, food prices are going up, everything's going up, but the minimum wage is not going up. There's there's temporary measures. Oh, we temporarily gave you a child tax credit. That's gone. Hey, yep. let's do a victory lap. We cut child poverty in half for five minutes. So it's just amazing to me. I, again, I, I genuinely think that Schumer and the Democrats think just using these kind of artificial categories, they could fool people into thinking things are actually good. So
2: if you think about this, The measures that they're talking about, they are always done in aggregate. In other words, you're not taking away the top, you're not taking away the bottom, it's just the aggregate, this big honking pipe of information that says nothing about nothing. There's no stratification, there's no explanation of how class plays out into that overall big number. And that big number has gone up. Guess what? Of course it's gone up. Because all of that money is in Wall Street right now. All of that money is in stock buybacks. All that money is literally in investor-grade bullshit. It is not going to the people. It is absolutely 100% not going to the people. But when you take an aggregate number, you can make it say anything you'd like it to say. And this is the problem. We need to really get into understanding what various levels are like that one chart you had that showed that very, very minuscule upgrade for the, the working class while the executives and the rich 220% that this mm-hmm. is a chronic problem in this country. And it's not just, I want to get away from it just being gotchas, right? This, this is really super important. This is not an accident. This is literally the way that the system is designed to work. They know for a fact, and this is why it is so important to get our economics correct in the way we talk to one another. They know for a fact that most people and the Bitcoiners are helping out with this, folks. All that Bitcoin community is doing is really fueling these rentier people's pockets by making everyone believe that because the government spent money into the economy, that it is going to create inflation by stating that and speaking it into the universe it gives air cover to these rentier class people it gives air cover Can you to uh, all can you dumb it can you
0: can you can you dumb it down for us non mmt people what's Let's rentier people
2: the, the the rent the the rent the people that uh that own the the buildings and are renting out your apartment to you the ah. landlords the, the, okay. this is they the the, the rent seeking behavior is at an all-time high because these folks are making money hand over fist, and there's nothing, there's no rent control, there's no nothing preventing them from doing this. And because we, the people, have been dumbed down into believing that because the government spent money, that that automatically equals inflation look at how many of these crypto fascists run around talking about they're debasing the currency the ignorance is so strong and so severe they are literally giving air cover to the landlord class we'll use that the land owning class these people that are gouging the hell out of the poor these slumlord millionaires they are literally giving them air cover to believe that because the government spent on the people that naturally that means we have debased the currency. Well, you cannot debase a free-floating fiat currency, which means that it's not pegged to gold. In other words, I, I, I don't want to bore you with minutia, but this is such an important thing. You know, people believe that, by, that we can debase our currency. In other words, we have like a pie of gold. And that we keep carving smaller and smaller slices of it. That's how we debase the currency because the dollar is tied to a slice of gold. And the smaller and smaller and smaller that that thing is, the worse we get. So ultimately, they're out there telling everyone that we're debasing the currency. But we clearly know that's not the case. That's not how it works. We have a free-floating fiat currency. So they're using this lie. And this lie helps the crypto fascists make money. Because they make you believe that the dollar is going to lose its value and simultaneously allow the rent class, the rentier, the landlord class to raise rates and jack up prices because we believe that that's how inflation happens. But it's not how inflation happens. Inflation happens because people are stealing, they're gouging, they're, they're literally jacking prices up because they can. It's got nothing to do with printing money and these liars on the crypto fascist side and the liars in the government and the liars that own the properties they're all in on it and this is the way the system is working and it's we're going to have to do it. we're going to have to and
0: do it. we're going to have to do a separate show on just what crypto fascists are because I'm very oh, intrigued. Oh, absolutely. Let's do it. I'd, lo- I- I'd love <laughs> to do, do that. I- I'd love to do crypto fascist because I-, I don't lie. I don't quite get the crypto. I've tried to understand it. It's a little over my head, but I do. I am interested in, in the whole crypto fascism. The last thing I'll say on this topic is you know, at the end of the day, it's not a coincidence that when economically, in a, in a time far, far, far long ago, Steve, when there was a little more egalitarianism, when the CEO did not make 300 times more than the worker be, when one parent could work and the other one could stay home if they wanted, when families had enough money to maybe take a vacation, maybe have two cars, when there was, you know, wealthier people had uh, what taxes were higher on wealthier people. It is not a coincidence that during those times, let's say the 1940, mid forties through the 1970s, where Things were a little more equal. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, the parties that were presiding over that poll numbers were very high. Uh, The parties that presided over that economic uh, egalitarianism, for the most part, won elections, kept Congress. So I think the Democratic Party thinks that if they just continue sprinkling this fairy dust and point to GDP and the stock market, and they're pointing out wages are up slightly. Yeah, wages are up slightly. But so is the price gouging, and you know the United, the uh, corporate Neanderthals, uh, you know jacking up prices during a pandemic, um, while by the way evictions are going on. Um, so I, I genuinely believe they don't get that if they would have done fifteen percent of Build Back Better, like the major things, okay, they'd be doing a lot better right now if they would have done. One or two executive actions. I'm talking Biden, that would help people don't economically, you. lowering prescription drug prices, whatever it is. Uh, things would be a lot better right now in polling, in um, you know looking ahead to the midterms. They just don't seem to get it that they don't they they could actually do it and win elections and not have to rely on the donor money if they actually did these economic things. The problem is, as we always talk about, they don't want to do it because their donors will not allow them to do it your parting thoughts on uh, that topic.
2: I, I think you nailed it. I, I think it's not just the the donor class. I, I think that you, you figure each of these parties, forget the elected officials, the party Illuminati, the, the whole, uh, the big wigs within the party, right? These guys are all like freaking seasoned lobbyists and seasoned policy wonks. They understand what the people want. They do know this stuff. This is not like some secret to them. The fact is, is that they are not there to serve that. They're there to obscure that. They're doing that while simultaneously not doing that. And 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 this, they're not dumb. I mean, I I refuse to give them a pass that they just don't get it. Like they're just clueless. They just don't get it. They freaking get it. That's why Schumer's up there praising Ronald Reagan. Because this is the only way that they have to obscure, hey, we're growing just like it did under Reagan. Well, let me replay everything you ever said about the economy under Reagan. Let's let's get a nice, you know, playlist of Schumer's comments about Reaganism over the years. I mean, this is a convenient, like, hey, let's point to this because, yeah, the economy is growing. Technically, all GDP is just indiscriminate growth. But it's not growth for the people. It's growth for the rich. It's got nothing to do with regular people. It's that aggregate pipe. Always remember when they talk about GDP, they're talking about aggregates. And aggregates can tell you any damn
0: thing they want without giving you the specific stratification. Trust me on this, man. And one more time, Colin, if you could put up the income inequality chart. So the next time uh, the Democrats gaslight you invoking, oh, we're doing, we we haven't seen these numbers since Ronald Reagan. Well, here's your booming economy over the last 40 years. I don't know. What happened in 1980? Did Ronald Reagan win the presidency? Because it seems like 1980, 1981, all of a sudden that line went up on steroids And by the way, the Democratic Party was moving right under Reagan and was on board with a lot of this pixie dust, trickle down voodoo bullshit. And then the Democratic Party under Clinton moved further right. And all that income inequality kept going up. The one thing that's steady, steady, Steve, it kept going up during war. It kept going up during uh, after 9-11. It kept going up after the collapse of the global financial crash. And it uh, has kept going up under democrats and republicans so it seems to me their definition of the economy booming is very thwarted compared to reality of that chart
2: well it depends on who they're talking about right it depends on who they're talking about for some people it's really kicking some serious ass let's just be fair it ain't kicking it for regular jane and joe
0: six-pack though that is true uh let's uh before i move on to the next topic folks please Smash that like button. It's right under uh, the video, the thumbs up button. Uh, Share this live stream to get it out to more people. We know YouTube, you know, occasionally uh, does not like to distribute our content. So please, please press that like button. I just want to give a quick shout out, by the way, because we're still getting uh, new Status Coup member signups. So I'm excited about this. We need to keep growing and keep getting new signups. So welcome, uh, new Status Coup member, Stephanie, Tony, John, and... uh, Layla Charles. So that's four new members just today. I think we've got another patron too. But statusku.com slash join. Sign up for five bucks a month. That's 16 cents a day. You could support our investigative reporting and our on the ground reporting, which I'm hoping to get back on the ground in the next few weeks uh, as COVID cases go down. But we need you. We don't take be- we don't take money for the big banks, the fossil fuckers, big pharma, big real estate, Silicon Valley, the military industrial complex, Chuck Schumer. We're funded by you. And for $5 a month, we're also, by the way, seeing uh, we're seeing a lot of members actually increase their membership. They started at $5 a month, and they're choosing to go up to $10 or other higher levels. So that we love to see because, as you know, Steve, it ain't easy to actually fund investigative or on-the-ground reporting without selling out and taking easy corporate money, which we have not and we will not. So please, please, statuscoup.com slash join. Five bucks a month, or you could sign up at the higher levels. Uh, if, you, by the way, for new members, if you missed uh, our members call because we do a monthly members call through Zoom, we did it last week. Uh, new members, you can rewatch it. It's under the members section on Uh, You could watch the old the members call from last week. Steve, uh, I want to move on because they're. I don't know. I don't want to oversell it, but there's some movement here in the labor movement this serious movement going on in the labor movement. Uh, let's start with uh, Starbucks uh, obviously you know I was on the ground in Buffalo uh, you know showing that uh, on, on, the, on the, in the lead up to them winning the first unionized uh, Starbucks in Buffalo now there's three uh, that are unionized in Buffalo and since the Buffalo victory it's been spreading like wildfire so here Starbucks Union pushes spread push spreads to 54 states. Uh, excuse me, 54 stores in 19 <laughs> states. Uh, Starbucks is facing a fast-growing union campaign just weeks after the first U.S. corporate store unionized in Buffalo. Employees at 54 stores in 19 states are pursuing union elections, according to organizers. 15 of those stores joined the union drive just yesterday, petitioning the federal labor, uh, labor officials to set a vote. The filing coincides with the start of contract negotiations between Starbucks unionized workers in Buffalo. Uh, I do, do believe I'm going to have an interview tomorrow with uh, somebody part of the Starbucks unionization campaign. So that's Starbucks. Amazon, which as far as I know, I've been one of the only journalists continuing to go to the Staten Island warehouse for the last eight, nine months. Uh, Amazon workers who have been organizing uh, in Staten Island uh, to win the first unionized Amazon in the country. And let me tell you something, what you're seeing with Starbucks If Amazon workers are successful in Staten Island, trust me, that thing is going to spread far and wide all over the country, and no none of Jeff Bezos' space shuttles could stop it. Uh, But Amazon workers in Staten Island, uh, they have collected enough signatures to hold their own union vote. Employees garnered uh, more than twenty five hundred signatures from workers saying, "Yes, we want a union." Uh, So they uh, Amazon workers at a warehouse in Staten Island have collected enough signatures to vote on unionizing. The National Labor Relations Board said Wednesday, that was last week. The union reached a sufficient showing of interest. The NLRB said the miles milestone came as Amazon faces another major union effort in Alabama, uh, that's in Bessemer, which they will have a revote now. Uh, they v- lost the vote last year. Uh, the NLRB ruled that Amazon broke the law <laughs> during that election process, so they're now having a revote. But this is pretty big. Uh, The Starbucks is obviously very big. And I would say so is what's going on uh, in Staten Island, because no disrespect to the Starbucks workers, uh, you know, each store, you know, you're talking, I don't know, 20, 30, maybe 40 employees. This Amazon warehouse is over 5,000 employees. So, and Amazon's turnover rate is 150%, meaning Amazon is hiring and firing workers at this one massive warehouse, Staten Island, uh, at literally uh, 150% turnover rate. So the fact that they got enough signatures is pretty huge. Uh, Colin, is that my end or his end that's having the problems? Are we having a problem?
2: Uh, His
0: end. Uh. Yeah, I think it's your end. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's kind of distorted and freezing and stopping here and there. So, uh, okay. um,
2: Sorry about that. It looks good here, but I'm okay. sorry. Uh,
0: but let me ask you, Steve. We talk a lot of doom and gloom. What are your thoughts on the Starbucks in specific? Because this is a lot of momentum. And now that it's kind of all of these stores, I mean, Starbucks, can, it, it, at first, it was trying to stop just one or two stores in Buffalo. But now it's... 54 stores all over the country so they obviously now it's just whack a trying to you know it's a tsunami now of stores trying to unionize
2: i think it's great i mean any positive motion towards getting people organized to fight back is great whether it be at starbucks amazon or you know any other uh, business we we have such a low unionization in this country I mean even though you're seeing these increased things happen you're actually have lower uh, unionization right now even to this day so it's a real challenge to be fair uh, but it's it, obviously anytime you can see labor organizing uh, irrespective of political party irrespective of race or or gender, coming together as workers, as, as the 99% and organizing, that's a very good thing. And, uh, you know, I I believe very strongly that uh, unionization um, and, and uniting labor as a whole is probably our best bet at actually making a difference going forward uh, because clearly getting behind the blue team or the red team isn't getting us anywhere. It's going to have to happen outside of the two parties. It's going to have to happen in some other way. And I imagine, Uh, As long as the unions don't get too cozy with the Democrats reliving some old past glory that doesn't exist anymore. uh, I think that that's a really, really positive uh, uh, thing for all of us because everything that is good for them, you know, trickles out to the rest of us in this sense because it creates the energy uh, for labor. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. This is still a very, very small uh, blip, but it's a very positive sign for sure.
0: And I also think people need to recognize, let's start with Starbucks. Yeah, I mean, get excited that they're winning union elections, but that's like, I would say 50% of it. Then you have a Herculean task of actually getting a contract, getting a fair contract with Mm -hmm. a corporate scumbag like Starbucks. So right now, the first unionized uh, Starbucks in Buffalo, they're beginning the process of trying to get go to the negotiation table with Starbucks. And I can tell you just from sources I have, they're kicking and screaming, Starbucks. So they have to, by law, recognize them, but that doesn't mean they have to, by law, work in good faith and uh, quickly work to do get a contract going. Uh, so you know, it remains to be seen what will happen as far as how quickly a contract will come for the first unionized store, what that contract will look at, And just because they lost the union vote doesn't mean they're not going to try and screw the workers on on a contract. Fortunately, with these Starbucks workers, they have experienced uh, old union hands working with them. Uh, These ones are not the corrupt union hands. Uh, So that's good. I wanted to also bring this up, Steve, because I don't know if this is like real or not, but some Democrats are actually trying to pass legislation to protect striking workers and their health care. So uh, this is from Politico. A group of House Democrats plan to introduce legislation Wednesday blocking employers from cutting off striking workers' health care benefits. Congresswoman Cindy Axne will lead the effort along with Congressman Steve Cohen, Linda Sanchez, Bill Pascrell, Brian Higgins, Jim McGovern, and Nakima Williams. Axne, Axne represents the Iowa district in which John Deere workers were on strike last year. And Cohen, the Tennessee district in which Kellogg workers were on strike, in both labor disputes, the employees reportedly lost access or almost or almost lost access to health care and other benefits while participating in the work stoppages. "Quote, exercising your right to fight for a better contract shouldn't mean risking your ability to get the essential health coverage for yourself or your family," uh, Congressman Axley said. This is a basic measure. One born of the unfortunate reality that employers use termination of health coverage to break strikes and force employees to accept a subpar contract. So I have two thoughts on this. Why do these congressmen think we need to protect workers' health care when they're on – to allow them to go on strike but not to allow them to leave the job? Why, how are those two things different? Because I'm <laughs> – hey. I don't know if this is just kind of, you know, theater and they're not actually going to really push for this, but it's a great it's a great bill. And it I, I'm for if you take that off the table, you will see even more workers go on strike if they if they still have their health care. But it seems like a cognitive dis- disconnect where they're saying, you know, they should not have to fear losing their health care. Well, workers shouldn't have to fear losing their health care, period if they're getting exploited at work, abused at work for workers that don't have a union to go and they can't go on strike. So what are your thoughts first on this measure? And then what I'm talking about, wh- why why are they only going to protect their healthcare benefits so that they can strike?
2: Well, I think you already know. I mean, p- part of this is that the neoliberal model is that they want you to have employer-based healthcare because they want you to need a job. Okay. So part of their way of devising society is to force you into these circumstances. They know that if the companies can literally cut you off, then that is going to make people even more willing to fight for single payer healthcare. They're going to be more willing to fight for universal healthcare to avoid employer paid uh, to take that power back away from employers. But that's the neoliberal model. So anything that they can do to keep employer paid health care intact, as opposed to moving to a single payer model, they're going to do that. Because it's really more important that you always believe the government cannot afford to do these things. It Only the rich people, only the big corporations can do these things. The government is completely out of money, completely broke, completely feckless, can't do anything right. We must rely on corporations to do this for us. We must rely on the rich to be kind and benevolent and, you know, rain their urine down on our head and call it rain. I mean, this is the... This is the neoliberal way, and they are going to defend that tooth and nail, period. This is literally the model. So this bill, while on one hand is, I guess, good in the sense that it gives striking workers uh, some security if it passes, it's also there to protect the model that is employer-based health care. That is, make no mistake about it, that is not really a, a gift to striking workers. That is a way of them say we're strengthening you know the existing model. I uh, No thanks, man. I mean, yay. I mean, good for them. Hopefully, it doesn't cause them to cave and and cross picket lines. But the fact is, is that this is not out of some benevolent. uh You know, ah, this is one hundred percent about defending the neoliberal healthcare model itself um, and protecting them from any kind of fallout that might occur from a an employer that would otherwise you know, destroy their model. That's that's what it right. comes down to.
0: And I also have a very hard time thinking something like that would pass. Uh, I don't think Republicans would provide any support, but I also think the Democratic Party donors don't want workers having more built-in leverage to go on strike because strikes are not good for business. Uh, so, hey, I mean, if these Congress people are serious about doing it, you know, points for them for at least proposing it. Uh, cause you, you would see, I mean, I could tell you, uh, when I was on the ground in Iowa covering the John Deere strikes, that was one of the main things workers were telling me that they were stressed about. Yeah. The loss in pay, they did get some type of, they did get some strike pay, uh, from the union pot. Cause part of your union do- dues go to, if you go on strike, you get some of your pay, uh, through the union. But very I mean, little. a lot of them were very worried about the health care not just for themselves but for their kids. So that is a massive thing if you could get something like this through and I would if in a in a fantasy land if two republicans were for this and mansion and cinema didn't block it or whatever and they could actually pass something like this, I think you would see a significant significant more of a number of strikes because you take that off the table and people just have to kind of figure out for those weeks you're on strike just you know, closing the gaps on your paycheck. Uh, I think you, that incentivizes a lot of people, but I do think you're right uh, that, you know, it's not exactly, uh, you know, changing the system and that these Congress people still want you indentured to your job based on healthcare.
2: That's right. That's, it. That's really what it comes down to. I, and I, I want to say something about the point you made about, you know, your dues going in and so forth. You know, I was in the local CWA 2222 out in Northern Virginia as a, as a cable splicer. And when we would go on strike, we would make, let's just say, hypothetically, a cable splicer could work 100 hours a week, get double time and a half for everything after the first nine hours of overtime. they get time and a half on Sunday. Uh, it, lots, of, lots of great overtime pay. But when it came time for the strike, they give you 200 bucks. It's uh, so you ended up having to go deliver pizzas at, you know, Domino's or something like that. You had no choice but to pick up a part-time job uh, to survive that. And, you know, that's not paying the bills. That's nowhere near enough to pay the bills. So strikers start off, if you aren't one of the people that have huge amounts of money saved up, it's very, very hard to stay on the line during a strike. Uh, because they, they just simply don't have the money. They don't have the resources to keep you flush for more than a couple of weeks. It strikes it going for a month or two. That really starts eating into people's personal savings if they have any. And as you've stated already, most people don't have enough money to put $400 away, much less strike for two or three months. And right. and that's really the kind of power that labor would need to take to take advantage of these things. So yay on the healthcare, but really fairness I mean, there should be some sort of payroll protection uh, for striking workers as well.
0: Absolutely. And I will say the one thing I saw, and I I haven't been covering strikes for years, but one thing I saw, at least with John Deere, there's a lot more mutual aid coming in. No, it does not. It does not end up, you know, filling that gap between your full salary. But there was a lot more mutual aid coming in, particularly in Iowa at those John Deere picket lines uh, donations coming in, food being sent, uh, even people, rotations of babysitters for childcare so that the strikers could be out on the picket lines. That does not close the gap. But I think if you see more strikes and you see more union drives and you see more victories, mutual aid just organically amplifies from that solidarity. Uh, you know, some of these, uh, strikes have had GoFundMe campaigns. No, that should not be, that should not be the policy. They, they should be able to go on strike and get most of their pay in health care because if if technically we are a labor country, which we're not, but they you know the politicians say we are, it should be you sh- you should be able to go on strike uh, and the companies would w- want to uh, rectify and come to a deal a lot sooner if they still had to pay the workers. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's just i'm I'm very, very encouraged. I don't want to oversell it, but I am encouraged. The starbucks thing is big this amazon thing to me is very big because not to discount you know these 50 plus stores if you get one amazon factory in america unionized especially this one which is the size of 15 football fields if they can't stop it in staten island the staten island warehouse and i've been there many times covering it if if they are successful i mean that's going to really uh, unlock a pandora uh, unlock uh Pandora's box. And I will say, if you think Amazon union busting have been bad thus far, and I've broken a lot of stories on their union busting in Staten Island, you ain't seen nothing nothing yet. Because now that they have an actual election, they don't have a date yet. But now that they have an actual election, Jeff Bezos is going to do everything humanly possible, including sending all the workers on a space shuttle uh, (laughs) to space so they can't vote. So they can't vote. Uh so we'll hey, we'll keep on it. We'll keep on it. Uh there's one more story, and I'm delighted to bring on uh Michael Lighty. Michael Lighty uh with the Sanders Institute. Uh you are uh, one of uh, if not the preeminent experts on universal healthcare. Uh you were uh digging Medicare for all and uh fighting the good fight before it was even a term. Uh so we've spoken before, and I texted you. Because, I don't know, I'm a little suspect about this because it involves Mark Cuban. Uh, It involves, I I think he's a billionaire. It involves a billionaire, and there's not really many billionaires that are genuinely, when they say they're trying to do philanthropy or something good, that that's the actual purpose. But let's just give the facts here. Mark Cuban has created an online pharmacy uh, for the express purpose of providing generic drugs, uh, drugs, expensive, big pharmaceutical drugs that people cannot uh, get cheaper. Uh, This company that he's launching is proposing, is finding a way to offer uh, drugs at significantly, I'm talking drastically less money. Uh, Mark Cuban's announcement over the weekend of an online pharmacy selling over 100 generic drugs at near cost was totally unexpected, but will likely be welcomed by millions who struggle to afford medication. The billionaire told TechCrunch that the business model is refreshingly simple. Lower prices reduce patient stress and that will lead to more customers. Shock, interesting. The Cost Plus drug company aims very simply to provide as many common medications as possible in generic form as low at, at, at as low a price as possible. All cash, no IP deals, no insurance company, just buy pills for what they cost to make plus 15% to cover overhead. Asked about the return on investment, Cuban admitted there isn't much to speak of by design. Quote, I want to be above break-even while maximizing the number of people who could afford their medications. Shoot, I would be happy if we could make a little, but push pricing of generics sold elsewhere down significantly. So, Michael, we'll get to the fact that this obviously doesn't change the system. But just on what Mark Cuban's company supposedly does, uh, what are your initial thoughts? Because it sounds like an amazing thing. Uh, I don't even know how Big Pharma, I mean, I would have thought Big Pharma would be doing everything they can to stop this. But what's your initial thoughts on what he's doing?
3: Well, it's very positive. It's, uh, of course, getting people lower price prescription drugs is a good thing. And I think that um, the fact that he's not selling prescription drugs with the primary motivation being profit, which is true even of generic companies, let alone the brand name manufacturers and distributors, is a positive because, of course, we've got way too much market uh, for profit incentives and dynamics in prescription drugs as we have in the entire healthcare system so on principle it's a much better approach lower prices focus not on profits but on a broad uh base of folks uh, serving a broad base of folks who need it so that it's certainly in that sense a positive does it still in it try to solve the problem through a market-based approach Yes, it does. And that's unfortunate. But again, when you take the profit motive out of that, it kind of uh, balances the equation somewhat more favorably, I think.
0: And when he's saying, uh, you know, the simple, simple, simpleness of it. Yeah. If we make it affordable, we think we'll just get more customers. We'll have so many more customers. Right. Let's say this was significantly successful. And I, I think it could be. Would that be, Would that do a lot of damage to big pharma? And would big pharma have to start lowering its prices? How do do you think that dynamic would play?
3: I think it would do damage to the generic sector. But keep in mind, where the big money is, is in brand name and especially specialty drugs. The ones you see marketed on TV are the ones that they make a lot of money providing manufacturing and and selling. So something like Trulicity, for example, a high-end diabetes drug that gets a lot of airplay uh, on TV and commercials, you try to buy that just out of pocket on a monthly basis and it's $1,300. This isn't going to impact that. It's not going to impact the big name drug manufacturers. It's going to put pressure on the generic uh, sector. And in that sense, it's low hanging fruit because that's not where really the big money, the big profits, the big spending is. So I I think it's going to be limited in terms of its impact on the pharmaceutical industry in
0: general, and
3: especially on the big name uh, players.
0: And, you know, as he's as he's doing this, uh, Colin, I sent you this before. I don't know if you have it, but this is from the Wall Street Journal drug makers raise prices by 6.6% on average early this year. So that's just this year. Right. Drug 6.6%. The companies kept most increases in the single digits for another year as Congress explores measures to curb high costs, which we've been hearing that for the last 20 years, that they're going to uh, curb a higher cost, but drug makers raised list prices by an average of 6.6% in the first few weeks of this year on cancer, diabetes, and other prescription medicines, sticking with more moderate increases while lawmakers scrutinized uh, pricing practices. So basically, it sounds like you're saying what Cuban's company is doing, it's going to address a lot of important drugs that people use, but not the most type of specialty drugs that he can't get his hands on
3: right it's going it's not going to have as we were suggesting a systemic you know change at the fundamental level about what we actually need to reorient The availability and cost and lower the cost of prescription drugs. It's not going to change at the systemic level, and it's probably not going to impact the major manufacturers uh, and big drug companies. But on the other hand, to the extent it is part of an environment that puts pressure on prescription drug prices, that shows that there are alternatives to how big pharma conducts its business and how it deprives patients of the medications they need, that's all to the good, because we do need a different obviously messaging and political context to really achieve fundamental reform. So Cuban puts pressure using some market mechanisms, lowering costs. Sure, that's going to have, I think, a ripple effect in terms of how the issue is viewed, how people experience it. And once, once patients have access to lower price prescription drugs, that's going to you know, impact the manufacturers. Ultimately, they're going to be under pressure to provide those drugs at, at lower cost. So I think he's on to something there. I mean, the Amazon, pharmacy was an attempt to do that obviously they have a non insurance price seems like the cuban model might be more aggressive and really taking the profit out and not relying upon the kind of exploitation obviously that's inherent in amazon so that that's also a good thing Putting you know undermining the amazon model could, could be a an ancillary benefit as well Steve,
0: what are let thoughts? me
2: ask you a question yeah just you know as I as I hear this I I really think a lot of this comes down to patent law I mean the the length of time these folks are able to sit on a patent and extend a patent is absurd um obviously you know Mark Cuban has shown moments of time where he is very human where he's very willing to uh, be one of the people I mean he he didn't come from the most high high echelon he came from, you know, the working class. This is a guy who I've seen at times for a billionaire. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's he's a billionaire. But for of the billionaires I've seen, he's one of the few people who seems to actually have some understanding of the struggle of regular people. I'm curious, you know, given the fact that when Bernie tried to uh, do the imports through Canada and you had Cory Booker deep six that basically. I'm curious. Are we going to have a rotating villain here blocking this? So do we have some other form of, uh, you know, marauder that's gonna that's gonna create havoc and block this? Because it seems like the Democrats
3: always find a way to, to imp impact the good things that are happening out there <laughs> gee i don't know why you're so cynical steve i, I think that uh, you're right i mean find out where the generic manufacturers are concentrated in the u.s and you'll find the congress member or senator who's going to push back on this because that's the sector that's going to receive the heat and i totally agree with you why aren't there diabetic uh, diabetes medications Uh, available on a generic basis because they've manipulated the patent process so successfully, they don't sell them on a generic basis. So Lilly and Abbott and the rest of them can make uh, tons of money. So until you change patents, and in fact, the truth is, as you know, the Biden administration has a lot of administrative power to deal with the patent issue And how they could, in fact, determine that these drugs are overpriced, that their availability is denied, and that they can... put pressure on those manufacturers and even go to what's called compulsory licensing and manufacture themselves uh, in government facilities. So there is a lot of ability to actually directly hit this sector and their manipulation of patents. And until I think a lot of the generic drugs, of course, are manufactured overseas. India is a big supplier, for example. So that may also be why this is more politically tenable, because it may not have the same impact domestically as some other, uh, approaches would.
0: And let me ask you, Michael, uh, just a quick detour. I remember when Biden ran, if you recall, cause I know you were glued to every primary, uh, debate, uh, he said, no COVID treatment free treatment has to be free. Uh, I don't know. I to- I've talked to people that have been in the hospital for a couple days to a couple weeks, and they're getting bills that are going to bankrupt them. So I, I, I don't know. we were told that this one's different. It's a pandemic, so it'll be free, but nothing has been free. Next no. to nothing has been free other than the vaccines, if, if you know. Uh, so could you kind of touch on e- th- this pandemic is continuing, and even people that need, you know limited hospital care or you know outpatient care, uh, they're getting insane volume of bills.
3: Well, it reflects the power of the corporate healthcare uh, industry and specifically the corporate hospital chains and their ability to manipulate coding and to basically say, oh, sure, we gave you COVID treatment, but actually it's not really just COVID. It's all these other things, and we're going to code it in such a way that we're going to demand a payment, and it doesn't, and and the fact is, is that these hospital corporations have bought off, like other sectors of the healthcare industry, the politicians and the regulators who would otherwise limit their ability to profit off of human suffering. And in this case, profit off the most uh, kind of outrageous kind of suffering, which is from a contagious pandemic. And so this again reflects the inability Of the current regulatory approach and financing system to actually rein in these corporate practices, in fact, arguably incentivizes them to upcode so that they get higher reimbursements. To actually incentivize them to find ways around uh, requirements for uh, free provision of care, because of course, if you had a single system where you could actually punish, you know, providers when they when they manipulate these kinds of of opportunities, you would have the ability to really, I think, destroy the incentives for them to do that kind of manipulation. But the truth is Medicare does have the ability in these hospital settings, right, to do some level of of punishment, and, and they don't. And why is that? Because of the cozy relationship that exists between the regulators and and the hospital providers in particular. But of course, you've also got the commercial insurers in the mix, and they they want to make sure to maximize, you know, their ability to limit care. And so they're not necessarily just going to be handing out, uh, you know, coverage for these kinds of, of uh, problems that people result from from having COVID. So where, and then ultimately when they mean, you know, uh, Jordan, when they say free care, they mean government paid care, right? Mm-hmm. And so ultimately it comes back to the public, they're feeding at the public trough. And that's, that's the perverse incentives of the system maximize the private profit, maximize reimbursement from the government and shift as many costs as you can onto taxpayers. And that's a direct I, result of not having single payer. I, I got to
2: ask you this because, you know, I, I talk a lot with a gentleman named Bill Black who brought down the Keating Five as auditor number one, uh, just a brilliant man, friend of Bernie, friend of the gang. I am curious here, we have made regulatory Uh, funding, funding for the actual regulators to be so minuscule, so absolutely feckless, impossible to keep up with at Wall Street to monitor all the different uh, trades and SEC type stuff. We, We don't have it there. We don't have it in healthcare. Everywhere we have regulatory bodies, we have made it so underfunded, so understaffed, so uh, cozy, if you will, by bringing insiders from the industry into these positions, and I understand a little bit of that because you got to have some knowledge to be able to really know what's going on. But but there is no real uh you know firewall there. We're talking about a real 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 cozy relationship at the regulatory level on just about every single aspect of regulation in this country, not just healthcare. What 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 do you think? What what would be your suggestion? Uh, if, if you were talking to activists of how to organize specifically about an issue that most people probably their eyes would roll back in their head, it would be better to watch paint dry or watch grass grow than to talk about regulators. But this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the actual place where you're actually going to get some satisfaction in ending corruption. What, what
3: are your thoughts on that? Well, we we confronted this, Steve, in the the case of Wall Street, right, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And there was this whole push, you know, Dodd-Frank and these other regulatory schemes, right, oh, we're going to reform Wall Street, we're going to actually, you know, regulate their practices. And we said, "Mm, not going to work, let's tax them instead and so that's where the financial transaction tax came in let's just capture you know hundreds of billions of dollars from them and devote that to human needs and then if you tax certain behavior that's probably going to be more effective than trying to regulate it so we could reduce speculation for example you could reduce the incentives for high frequency trading that uh so you you know a sense really kind of follow the money same principle applies for medicare for all have the entire system Regulated by a Medicare for All system, so that the rates are lowered, and you fund that regulatory apparatus directly, and then also provide incentives so that the hospitals, if they if they uh, go beyond the the rates, or if they abuse the system by upcoding and so forth, you say, okay, then you're out of the system, and you no longer have a hospital, and in fact, we'll just we'll public will nationalize your hospital essentially, right? We'll say, okay, you can't operate it as a private operator because you're exploiting the system. We'll simply take it over for the public good. Those are the kinds of mechanisms ultimately you need to have the ability to, and the same thing with compulsory licensing that we're talking about prescription drugs. Okay. You're going to exploit your market position. We're going to manufacture the product instead. Same with the defense production act, all this supply chain greed, uh, uh, you know, going on as a result of the pandemic. No, we're just going. We're going to take over those facilities produce the goods ourselves. Those are the kinds of solutions I think ultimately that are far more effective than a strictly regulatory approach. But then let's say in terms of, and I think compulsory license is a great issue for for activists to work on. Sounds wonky, but it's basically we're going to nationalize the production of prescription drugs because you guys are exploiting us and denying us what we need. Similarly, let's engage in a budget fight. Let's fund the regulators, right? Why Why not have a fight over the fact that we Consumers, again, what happened to the consumer protection movement? People say, oh, you know, the anti-regulatory agenda is somehow good for the country. No, it's not. It's part of what you were talking about earlier, the neoliberal agenda that says private companies can regulate themselves. That's the essence, right, of neoliberalism. No, let's fund the public sector to protect us. Let's, re, let's reimagine what it means for government to actually protect its people. That's
0: what I think it comes down to. I love your answer. It's with you. You're getting Steve too excited. Let me, (laughs) let me, I I would be, I would be remiss before I let you go, Michael. Um, And you and Steve might disagree on this actually, because I don't think he's for trying to get uh, Medicare for all, you know, universal health care on a state level, but California yesterday, we covered it yesterday. Cal care, which was single payer, uh, the supposed to hold a vote uh i don't know california democrats run the whole thing uh it got pulled it it did not go for a vote uh the uh the quote-unquote progressive who sponsored the bill said he pulled it because he didn't have the votes uh i heard there was a contentious uh meeting after that uh on the fact that he pulled it but that's it it that was the last day to vote on it so now what is it, another three, four years of wilderness? So what 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 are your thoughts? Uh, frankly, I think it's a bunch of bullshit uh, that they didn't vote on it. I would rather, if I'm a progressive, I'd rather put it to a vote, even if it loses, get, get the corporatists on the record who are voting against it and then primary them. Uh, so what are your thoughts on, I mean, I don't want to say it went down in California because they didn't even vote on it, but it being pulled from the floor.
3: Well, first of all, If you're going to hold the vote, then you have to be prepared to carry out electoral consequences. I, you know, all that was talked about was, okay. we're going to withhold endorsements. That's not sufficient. I think you're right, Jordan. If you are going to say we want accountability, then here's here's the two million dollar fund we have to take out the Democrats who vote against us there was no indication that that existed there was no indication that there was a political will to do that but and there's a deep pocket involved here who could make such i think an assertion so it's not so I, I agree with you there's got to be a direct relationship of accountability and endorsements is not enough on the other hand if you think that we're going to be able to win over people right who might at this point vote no and lock themselves into that position in a way that's going to be not tenable for them to to back out. That's an argument. I think the most salient thing that the author said was he didn't have sufficient organizational support in in the political world to move recalcitrant legislators. That means that the organizations, progressive organizations, unions primarily, probably, who fund these Democrats were not telling those Democrats to vote for the bill. And you know, in state legislators, even as much as Congress, if the organizations who brung you aren't telling you that this is a priority for them, it's not going to happen. And that's the reality in Sacramento. It's a reality in a lot of state legislators, The organizations drive what passes through the legislature. And it's a fight between those interest groups in the state capitol. AB 1400,
0: no, the one only one, one yeah, sec sorry. real quick. I got to let Steve go to make his kids dinner. Yeah. Uh, Steve, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'll see you again next Tuesday. Tell people where they could find Rogue Scholar on Real Progressive. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Check out our webpage, realprogressives.org, and definitely find the show at Real Progress in Action uh, on YouTube. Also check out the podcast Macro and Cheese Saturday mornings on all your favorite podcasting platforms. And Jordan and gang, thank you guys so much for having me on. As always, this was a pleasure. And thank you so much for having this awesome discussion. I really appreciate meeting you. Hopefully I can talk to you on my own show sometime as well.
3: I'd love that, Steve. Thank you. Great to meet you. Thank you, you,
0: Steve. You got it. So, Have a good one, everybody. Thank you. So, Michael, you're Mm -hmm. telling me that the authors of this bill are saying they didn't have enough institutional or organizational support. When you have the California Nurses Association, which is a big organized, as far as I know, very organized, have been championing this along with the National Nurses United. And I believe other organizations have been. What do you mean by what do they mean that they didn't have the organizational or institutional support?
3: Well, basically, unions weren't weighing in to make this a priority. That's what it comes down to. Other advocacy groups in in the healthcare care reform uh, lobbying group uh, we're not demanding that this bill move community-based providers frontline you know community clinics we're not demanding that this uh, be a priority That's what it comes down to. I don't know the, you know, I'm not going to name specific individual institutions or organizations, but that's what it takes to move in Sacramento. You've got a a coalition of healthcare reform advocates, right, that works on all sorts of things, works on health for all, the effort to cover undocumented residents of California. They succeeded in getting that uh, uh, to happen this year, most likely, right? The governors endorsed it. They're going to move it through the budget process. That's what it takes. Right. Uh, And that was a multi year effort. So you had, for example, the California Democratic Party. They said, okay, lobby your legislators for our package, our legislative package. Right. They didn't even mention AB 1400. The California Federation of Labor was not engaged in the last. You know, minute uh, lobbying blitz, in part because there were unions in the in the labor federation who had some questions about the policy uh, impact of AB fourteen hundred. So CNA is a hugely powerful and influential organization that deserves tons of credit for the kind of campaign that they mobilized. But they cannot do it alone. Right. That's I think what what ultimately is being said here.
0: So where do where do things go next? Obviously, we know nationally, uh, Medicare for all. Uh, right now, uh, there's not any momentum for that. But on the state level, uh, where do activists go? Whether it be in California or elsewhere, elsewhere, if they're fighting to get single payer uh, enacted, I I'll be honest, it's it's pretty Debbie Downer. If it's not going to happen in California, California, uh, it's pretty challenging elsewhere then.
3: Well, first of all, let's remember what AB 1400 did. They took some amendments in the last week so that it established, it ultimately became a bill that established a board that appointed by the governor and legislature that would carry out a fiscal analysis and present and and engage with the federal government uh, for the necessary support and and money, and then present a report on the fiscal viability of the program and an eight-year funding plan. And then that would be reviewed by the legislative committees, and ultimately would require another vote of the assembly and Senate, by July 1st, 2024, and a vote of the people at the ballot in order to be implemented. So it's not the case that passing this to the Assembly and then the Senate and getting signed by the governor would enact CalCare. That was not on the table. What was on the table was the intent to go through a process that could come up with a program that could then be approved by the legislature and the voters. So that's number one. Let's be clear. Right. And that wasn't going to happen before uh, November of 2024 in the case of a ballot initiative. Secondly, we've got the Healthy California for All Commission, which is going to deliver a report in April. They're moving toward a plan for what they call unified financing, what we call single payer. They've published reports that show the fragmentation, waste, and huge cost of the present system. That's the context for putting an alternative financing program in place. You say the current system is going to cost $517 billion. The California Republican Party said single payer is going to cost $400 billion. Hmm, sounds like a deal to me. Let's put the taxes in the context of how the current spending of individuals and businesses is the greatest burden they face. That's the context in which to put public taxation. So we're gonna be able to build on, I think that report and move, let's get everyone covered in in health for all. Okay, it's not adequate. Let's unwind the privatization of the existing public program known as Medi-Cal, Medicaid, so that it doesn't just be, again, feeding at the public trough for profits. Let's establish uh, a state healthcare budget rate setting authority and other cost control mechanisms, which we're going to have to do under single payer. And most importantly, let's get authorization to engage with the Biden administration and get the full federal support and resources we need. And then we can figure out how much California has to finance it. All those things can still be done. Let's do them. And let's build on the infrastructure that's been the grassroots infrastructure that was created with CalCare, and then get the organizational buy-in. That's what we've been focused on: is building the organizational capacity, right, that can actually win this.
0: Well, question also is, a uh, the institutional uh, money that was flooding these politicians to vote no. Uh, so you could have a lot of organization organizational support, but if they if they are more threatened or they or they find the trade off more lucrative yeah i'll take my chances you know pissing off union a union b this and that i'm going to go over here and take this money and, and you know stick with stick with the usual suspects uh that's that's a hard thing to overcome the other thing is you mentioned federal support from the biden administration i mean this is a president who said if medicare for all passed congress he would veto it or he wouldn't sign it so Do you you actually see support from the Biden administration? I mean, I mean, Republicans at the moment look like, you know, it might not. Democrats might not have complete control either. So if it gained momentum in California, do you actually legitimately see the Biden administration working with California to implement this?
3: Well, Assemblymember Cholera met with representatives of CMS, which is the agency that, that determines uh, the approval of, of federal waiver applications, and they indicated that they would work with him to come up with federal support. This is purely an administrative act,
0: mm-hmm. and it
3: doesn't actually implicate uh, – I agree with you – their opposition to federal medicare for all. I think ultimately this is a political strategy to to move it and win it federally. I do think that, but it is not in the immediate term something that would, you know, threaten their their current position. So in that sense, yes, I think they would be supportive and I think they would want to see California do what California wants to do. It is obviously a trove of Democratic money and votes, right? In terms of combating the industry campaign, that's where you know advocates, uh, activists need to be clear about what a ballot initiative is going to mean. It's going to mean hundreds of millions of dollars against us. So how do we, in the meantime, build the organizational support, the resource base to compete on the ballot, right, when you got a major campaign like that fought on TV. And one of the key things is to get those deep pocket philanthropies that have been dedicated to universal health care, but have not clearly weighed in in support of single payer. How do we get their engagement? How do we get their money involved in this fight? And And that, I think, is a is a key reason why the Healthy California for All Commission, if it points toward single payer, is a way to bring in some of those deep pocket institutional players that have been on the sideline for single payer, but claim to support universal health care. Let's put their feet to the fire and engage them. And once you put that kind of money in play, then you're really talking about a much more level playing field when it comes to a ballot fight. I'm not saying that's automatic. I'm not even saying it's definitely going to happen. What I'm saying is, is that there are concrete steps that can be taken to make it more likely.
0: Michael Lighty, uh, thank you very much. By the way, to the audience, at eight o'clock East, around 8 o'clock Eastern, so in less than two hours, we'll be posting. Uh, Tita Desiree Berg did a follow-up interview with Amar uh, Shergill, He's the head of the California uh, Democratic Party's uh, Progressive Caucus. So Tina interviewed him uh, this morning on the vote being pulled and kind of the next steps. So we're going to be posting that probably at eight o'clock Eastern time right here on the channel. So if you want the skinny on what actually happened, not you know, not that you don't know what you're talking about, but obviously uh, the Progressive Caucus in California were very instrumental and in pounding the pavement to get to past this. That's who you were referencing. You know, they were threatening to pull endorsements, this and that, to people, to assembly members who voted no. So we'll have that interview posting it uh, at eight o'clock Eastern. Uh, thank you, Michael Lighty, uh, f- uh, fellow with the Sanders Institute, uh, expert, uh, one of the top experts, I'd say, on Medicare for All, universal health care, been fighting for it for many decades. Uh, thank you uh, for joining us. Thank you so much, Jordan. Really appreciate it. Great to see you again. Absolutely.